Blog Talk Radio. Hi everyone, this is Marty McDermott, the president of Franchise Interviews, and I can't start today's show without talking about the ISO 10002. You know, some people just love to complain, but companies have a responsibility to care. The International Organization for Standardization, ISO, has revised ISO 10002, the standard for complaint handling. This document enables organizations to foster a customer-focused environment, open the feedback, heightening their customer satisfaction. You can get the ISO 10002 standard from the American National Standards Institute, ANSI, the U.S. member body of ISO. Visit ANSI.org forward slash complain to learn more. That's ANSI.org forward slash complain to learn more. Franchise Interviews. From Easton, Pennsylvania to Sydney, Australia, you're listening to Franchise Interviews. Franchise Interviews. Welcome to Franchise Interviews. Franchise Interviews has been giving an up-close, behind-the-scenes look at franchising and entrepreneurship. Listen to interviews with franchisers, franchisees, franchise authors, franchise experts, and attorneys. And now... Welcome your host, Marty McDermott, and Franchise Interviews. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Franchise Interviews, where for over 11 years now, we've been asking the franchipreneurs of all one. I'm your host, Marty McDermott. I'm the president of Franchise Interviews, and we have a great show this evening. You're going to hear our interview with Dr. Scott Shane, and we start our show discussing his popular book, The Illusions of Entrepreneurship. And Scott Shane challenges the myths we hold about entrepreneurs in America, like who they are, what they do, and how they succeed. Then in part two, we discuss his fascinating book, Born Entrepreneurs, Born Leaders, where Dr. Scott, Scott discusses how your DNA affects your workplace behavior. And lastly, in part three, we play our interview on our New York's WBOX radio, Go Brand Yourself, with the popular Dr. John Antillo. That's coming right up. Franchise So stick around because we have a great show. Are you looking for a franchise that delivers? Businesses will always need shipping, and for more than 25 years, loyal customers have depended on Unishippers for reliable savings and exceptional customer service. Unishippers is focused on just one thing, helping small and medium-sized businesses save time and money on all their shipping needs. And as the largest reseller of complete shipping services in the country, we have the buying power to ensure that we succeed. The Unishippers franchise offers low startup costs, no equipment or real estate required because they're not retail, residual income, and a quality of life and work-life balance. For more information on becoming a Unishippers franchisee, go to www.unishippers.com and click Franchise Opportunities or call Franchise Development at 801-708-5822. That's 801-708-5822. Franchisers, are you looking to reach aspiring entrepreneurs looking to buy a franchise? Are you looking to reach a highly educated audience on franchising? For over eight years, Franchise Interviews has been giving an up-close, behind-the-scenes look at franchising and entrepreneurship through our website, FranchiseInterviews.com. 
or you can hear and read interviews as well as get tips from some of the most successful sources in franchising. Our weekly franchise radio show where each week you get to hear a new interview with franchisers, franchisees, franchise authors, franchise experts and attorneys and our podcast, Great Quotes in Franchising. For more information, go to FranchiseInterviews.com or call us at 610-905-2919. That's 610-905-2919. Hi, this is Connie McDermott, Administrative Assistant for Franchise Interviews, LLC, and you're listening to Franchise Interviews. Franchise Interviews. From Easton, Pennsylvania to Sydney, Australia, you're listening to Franchise Interviews. Franchise Interviews. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to a very special edition of Franchise Interviews, where for over 11 years now, we've been asking the franchipreneurs of all in one. I'm your host, Marty McDermott. I'm the president of Franchise Interviews, and we have a great show this evening. We're going to hear our interview with Dr. Scott Shane, and we start our show discussing his popular book, The Illusions of Entrepreneurship, where Dr. Scott Shane challenges the myths we hold about entrepreneurs in America. Then in part two, we discuss his fascinating book, Born Entrepreneurs, Born Leaders, and we discuss how your DNA affects your workplace behavior. And then we wrap up the show with our interview on New York's WVOX, Go Brand Yourself. And let's go right into our interview with the very popular Scott Shane. Good. How about yourself? Good, good. Uh, Dr. Shane, uh, joining us is my co-host Don Johnson, and Don is the president of Diamond Financial Services. And I know you wanted to say hi, Don, to Dr. Shane. Hi, Dr. Shane. We uh, really, uh, you know, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, you know, Martin, I've been looking forward to this a few weeks uh, with the book you wrote. Really, some new information for us. So, uh, uh, you know, we look forward to speaking to you. Thanks for coming on. Great. Thanks, Dr. Shane. We always like to start off by asking our guests, "Where are you calling from this morning?" Uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Okay, great. How's the weather there today? Actually, it's quite beautiful today. Good, good. Well, September's like that, I know, in Ohio. You know, we've actually had a lot of franchises from the Ohio area, haven't we, Don? Yeah, Franchisees, yeah. you know, doing the show over the last two years. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Shane, how did you get involved or interested in entrepreneurship? Well, it's funny that, uh, that, that you say that because I'm the child, actually, of uh, two entrepreneurs. And oh, interesting. You probably don't know this, but I actually have an area of research where I look at genetic factors that lead people to uh, become entrepreneurs. There's actually some evidence that there's that, that uh, our genes affect that, so it's right. quite possible that's why I got interested. That's interesting. You know, this is one of the questions or debates we had. Uh, we did a blog a long time back, Dr. Shane, uh, as far as you know, can entrepreneurship be taught or are entrepreneurs born? You know, so um, it's interesting that you actually mentioned that. That's the first I've heard of it too. As far as right. uh, you know, you know, could be in your genes. I guess maybe my dad will be happy about that. Uh, he's, owned, <laughs> he's owned some businesses and has done pretty well. He was a pilot, but he's uh, he's, he's done some other things. I have to talk to my dad about that. Right. Uh, Dr. Shane, why why did you write the book, The Illusions of Entrepreneurship? Well, I actually have been researching uh, entrepreneurship for um, close to twenty years now, and. What had happened was I started seeing things that I thought I knew to be true, and when mm-hmm. I'd investigate them, I realized that um, I was wrong. And I thought, well, you know, if I have this list of things that I thought were correct, and it turns out when I looked at the data carefully that I was wrong, probably a lot of other people 
uh, had the same illusions that I did, and you know, I picked up enough of these to think it was worthy of a book. Right, absolutely. That's interesting. If you, you know, I, and I read how you just just coming across a lot of people didn't have the correct information, the facts as they're starting a business, which obviously right. could be crucial. I mean, you got to be. Yeah, I mean, you have to be on your game. I mean, you have to make sure that business plan is solid. Uh, I mean, the, the odds are against you to begin with starting out. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you have uh, you know wrong information, I guess you go down the wrong path pretty quickly. So it's you know, it's interesting how you keyed in on that and uh, you know saw that as an opportunity. And then uh, the other thing is that entrepreneurs actually tend to be over optimistic. We have some evidence right. that that's true. And so what happens is if you've got wrong information out there combined with a tendency to be over optimistic, you can really get a lot of people into trouble. And you know people are investing real money that they can mm-hmm. lose uh, in this. And you want them to actually know the right odds. There's nothing wrong with taking a risk if you know the right odds. Right. But what you don't want to do is take the risk thinking you know you're going to be really successful when the odds are really against you. That's true. Yeah. I mean, a lot more people today, Dr. Shane, are using their retirement funds, you know, to get into these things, you know. So uh, it, it, the book really does make you, I think, you know, think twice uh, about going into your own business. That's for sure. We talked that, uh, about that in, in you know, segment one, Marty, about right. uh, people going into business. You know, make sure you have that cash reserve. Make sure you have plenty of working capital. I mean, that's a whole other side uh, conversation, but one important step of the whole process of starting up a business. Um, uh, Dr. Shane, who, who should read the book? Well, I think there's, it's useful for a lot of uh, different audiences. First, I think it's useful for anybody who's starting a business or thinking of starting a business because, uh, you know, they probably want to get the facts right and not have a bunch of illusions about um, things like where they're going to finance uh, their business. You don't want a bunch of people thinking, oh, they're going to get venture capital money when they're really not. Right. Um, so entrepreneurs are, are one set. Another side is um, the investors, the people who are putting money in, because you don't want people thinking that um, – their chances are really high of making a huge amount of money off of the typical entrepreneur and then, of course, thinking that the entrepreneur they backed is somehow the real lemon out there because they didn't do as well as some expectation. And then I think um, uh, policymakers are another important audience because we've got a lot of governments, the local government, state government, federal government, all trying to encourage economic growth through entrepreneurship, and the key is they've got to understand what kind of entrepreneurship is generating jobs and generating wealth. Otherwise, they're just going to waste our tax dollars. For our audience, um, Dr. Shane, what questions does the illusions of entrepreneurship address? Again, Don and I both read the book. but um... Well, so, so one question is, what does it take to make a new business successful? And one of the things that the book points out is that a lot of the things that we believe, um, that it's a lot about us as people, Um, are inaccurate, that things like the kind of business opportunity you have and the industry that you're in account for a lot of performance. And I think what happens to a lot of people is we have this belief as human beings that we want to over-ascribe our performance to things that are about ourselves and not about things we can't really control. We can't change our industry very well. We can't change our business opportunities very well. So we like to think that it's us that matters. And it turns out that, sure, individuals matter, but the the business opportunity matters um, too, to a great extent. And being able to pick that, and what the book tries to do is help people see, well, what is it about a good opportunity? Uh, What is it about an industry that makes it good for startups? The other thing is that... um, People make a lot of mistakes that could easily be corrected. They go after the wrong kind of financing. They don't do a business plan well. They 
don't form a good team. They don't set up the right legal structure. And one of the things that the book tries to point out are kind of the easy-to-fix mistakes, the things that are under right. your control so that you can fix the odds. I mean, you can't decide whether, you know, your particular product is suddenly going to become the hottest thing ever, but you can avoid making a, you know, mistake about getting, you know, your cash flow wrong because you don't have um, a financial structure in place to manage cash flow. Um, and then I think that the other thing is, that I think is very useful is for people to get a realistic understanding of where money comes from for financing businesses, because I think people um, labor under a lot of illusions about where that capital comes from. And one of the goals of the book is to say, hey, look, this is how people really get money, and this is what they're going to have to do. And um, you're probably not going to get venture capital. You're probably not going to get business angel money from a lot of businesses. What you're probably going to do is um, either invest your own money or you're going to personally guarantee loans from a bank. Yeah, and that's my business, as you might have uh, heard, Dr. Shane. We, you know, our company's you know talking to many people every day across the country, and there is a lot of you know, misconception. Uh, you know, sometimes people think uh, you know they can you know get financing, for example, as long as they just have good credit. But there's a lot of other things that lenders look for, uh, you know, with getting uh, uh, financing. So we're uh, always in that uh, you know consulting and you know, giving advice mode to people. Uh, and helping people with the whole financing part, you know. So really, so what you were just addressing is, you know, really people have to do more, do you know, due diligence, and uh, you know, for people to uh, to do their uh, you know research on an industry and so forth. Uh, uh, you know, I guess you recommend that people should uh, you know, should align themselves with consultants and specialists to help them in this process of considering starting up a business, or if they decide, you know, to make sure they go about it the right way. Well, uh, you know. The they need to get information somehow. Now you can get you can get information by getting help from um, consultants. You could get information by kind of doing research. Uh, you could get information by you know talking to people in an industry. I think one of the um, one of the misconceptions that uh, people labor under is that entrepreneurship is easy. You can just if you got get an idea, whatever idea you get, you should just go run with it. You should go do it. There's this emphasis on being active and going and doing as opposed to thinking about whether an idea is any good. And one of the things that I think is really important that people always keep in their mind is that once you pick an idea to pursue, you basically cut yourself off from pursuing a better idea that comes along later because you've committed to one idea. And so what you probably want to do is go evaluate an idea and say, is this one really worth doing? Because if I look at it and I say, oh, it's not worthwhile, I still have the option to do a better idea when it comes along. But if I go pursue something that isn't very good, you know, I'm probably going to end up locked into kind of either trying to make a go of it and, 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 and possibly failing. Were you surprised, Dr. Shane, by uh, some of the findings uh, during the research phase of, of writing the book? Uh, absolutely. I was particularly surprised about things like how people really finance businesses. I was surprised at how frequently debt is used because we have this um, view somehow that people get equity a lot, um, and they think it's that you know a small number of businesses get equity and they get written about a lot. But um, getting outside equity is pretty rare, so the financing stuff surprised me. The um, effect of uh, how important industry is and what industry you're in, that surprised me a lot, too. I thought it was important, but I didn't think it was uh, as important. I think that um, what also surprised me a lot was how many things matter that um, are easy to fix, and yet people still make those mistakes because they're they just don't have the right information. I, I you know, as an an economist, you sort of think that um, the system works pretty well, and that you know there's not going to be a lot of 
things you could do to improve just because um, uh, you didn't know. You know, we tend right. to think people generally know what they're doing, and then it's things beyond their control that, that affect their performance. I, I was amazed, uh, Dr. Shane, at the uh, self-employment rates. You know, everyone's always talking about the rise of entrepreneurship here in America, you know, and, and looking at uh, uh, the other countries, I mean, compared to uh, the United States. I mean, I think Turkey might have been one of them, and Mexico was another. Um, were you surprised there? Um, again, I see a lot of uh, textbooks. Again, you're a professor, uh, you know, talking about the rise of entrepreneurship here in the U.S. Um, yeah, so, so there, yeah. Were, there were two parts of that that were very surprising to, to me. So it turns out that the, the U.S. isn't very entrepreneurial by a number of measures, self-employment, number of businesses that get created every right. year, capita, that kind of thing. And that it used to be much more so that we're on a, um, a declining uh, a trend. And also the fact that places where we think of that have a lot of high growth entrepreneurial activity within the U.S., places like Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. they actually aren't very high on the total amount of entrepreneurial activity. And places that have um, kind of many fewer high growth startups actually tend to have a higher proportion of people uh, running their own businesses. And, and it's interesting, but if you kind of explore it a little bit, you realize that it makes a lot of sense that um, a lot of times what people are doing is they're starting businesses because they don't have a better option and that the businesses they're starting aren't particularly uh, successful and that as countries get better and you've got a lot of economic growth, people opt in to go into work for somebody else because things are better. And you can think of this as Walmart is a lot more competitive than a lot of of the small uh, independent businesses that it's essentially replaced. And Walmart doing that and replacing a you know, grocer and replacing a florist and replacing the bike store and replacing all those things, that's actually lowering the rate of entrepreneurship over time. The other thing um, that happens is you think about a company like Google and you think about how they're providing all these high salaries and all these good perks to people. And a lot of people, when those are their job options, will say, well, maybe I shouldn't start a business if, you know, I can get free sushi for lunch uh, at Google. Right. Are, are there temporary uh, ups and downs uh, in, in what you're speaking about, uh, Dr. Shane, like in a down economy or uh, heavy layoffs? Uh, I mean, might be a spike in, uh, uh, you know, people starting up businesses. Uh, I guess yeah. it could go up and down, but the overall theme, and I was surprised, you, you just think with the you know, increasing population, there's going to be more people starting businesses, more, more entrepreneurs, but you just found you know, really the opposite. Oh, well, let, let me uh, be clear. No, no, this was on a per capita basis that we see the decline. So the population, in an absolute sense, we have more, uh, more entrepreneurs, but as a percentage of the population, it's shrinking. Um, right. And... and Yes, there are ups and downs. I mean, this is the overall trend. It, that one of the things that's interesting is that down economies tend to ha- cause a spike in the increase in the amount of entrepreneurship. And one of the reasons right. why is that when people are unemployed, their odds of starting a business go up a lot. And so when you get more people being uh, unemployed, you know, you see a spike in the aggregate statistic. Interesting. Interesting, yeah. And um, uh and I just wanted to ask for a quick backtrack a little bit. Um, you know, what is your definition of an entrepreneur? A person who starts their own business. It's really as simple as that. It's simple okay. as that. Uh, this is all very interesting. And you know, Marty and I being in the franchise industry, I just want to ask you, what are your thoughts on the growth of franchising uh, you know, over the last uh, decade, Dr. Shane? Well, what I think is interesting, I, you know, you probably know, I've I've written on the, the franchise industry, yeah. um, particularly from the point of view of uh, 
of uh, franchisors. And yeah. what's interesting is that there seems to have been a plateauing of kind of the franchise activity, um, and it hasn't been spreading as much um, as it had, say, over the decade um, uh, before that. And, and it seems a little bit like franchising is big. It's a big chunk of the economy, but it's hard to break into a lot of new industries successfully, industries where franchising historically didn't work. You get right. a few of them where that tends to happen, but for the most part, franchising seems to work in certain sectors of the economy well, other sectors of the economy not that well, and we aren't getting the huge growth in that activity that, that we you know, got 10, 15, 20 years ago. Well, Marty, last week, remember, we talked about uh, how, how doctor's offices, you know, chiropractors and, and specialists right. are starting to franchise their concept. I thought that was pretty interesting. So maybe, Dr. Shane, that's an example. Uh, the, you know, the jury's still out if franchising could be successful for, uh, say, podiatrists or chiropractors or, you know, the specific niches, uh, dentists uh, in, in franchising. It's kind of an interesting uh, comparison, right? Right, and, you know, in... in in the book, um, you know, that I did uh, from Ice Cream to the Internet on, on franchising, one of the things that's pretty um, clear is that these medical areas, where we've seen this before, we had hemorrhoid clinics as one yeah, area. Good where example. We saw this, that's exactly. For example, right? We saw, we saw um, uh, we've had dentists actually for quite a while without kind of a huge growth in, in that activity. One thing right. that's difficult about these things is that it's hard to sell them to a lot of people because, you can't really sell the franchise to somebody where there's no dentist involved, right? I mean, you've got to have some right. uh, professional that's providing um, that service. Right. And in fact, um, one of the areas that um, could possibly um, see some of this uh, franchising growth are these quick care clinics um, where people have toyed with the model of, well, should they franchise that or should they own them directly? And the big question is, well, is the market big enough, right? If I'm going to have an right. ice cream franchise, pretty much anybody who wants to run their own business, I could sell that to. If I'm going to have a quick care clinic and I'm going to need um, you know, to have doctors or nurse practitioners involved, can I sell it to a third party who's going to hire those people, or do I need to sell it to them? And if I'm selling it to them, is the market big enough? Um, um, you know, Industries like... Uh uh, like senior care and just services in general, just mm -hmm. had a lot of big growth in in, in franchising. I, I guess franchising kind of rode the tide of the you know growing uh, you know population, not the you know the uh, the older population. Uh, so it's been pretty interesting. That's a good. The senior care though is a good example of of something where it works pretty well because you don't need a tremendous amount of technical expertise mm -hmm. to provide that service. That's True. different right. than the dentist, right? I mean, you right. need a lot of technical knowledge to provide that service. Right. Good, good point. What advice would you give to an aspiring entrepreneur looking to buy a franchise or start their own business? You've touched on a few things, but I'm sure you have a few more, right. Dr. Chain. Well, so one thing that, that um, I think is important that people consider that's actually often not thought about enough and, and, and directly relates to franchising is thinking about the decision about buying versus starting from scratch. Um, you know, one of the things that um, we see is that Businesses, when you buy a business from somebody else, those businesses tend to perform better than when people start businesses from scratch. And the question is, can people buy them at, at the right price so that the numbers work just as well as starting from scratch? Um, now, now, is that buying an existing business or buying a startup franchise concept? Buying, buying an existing business. Okay. Right? And so one of the things then about, about, um, and about that is, 
one of the advantages is if you got a business and somebody else has run that business, um, there's some evidence that the business works. And the same thing is true when you look at uh, a franchise, right, which is that if, a, if you're really talking about buying a franchise where there's some evidence that that business is ongoing and been successful for a number of years, you're going to get a real advantage. Now, again, it's always a question of making the numbers work because it's more expensive than starting a business from scratch. It could be a better business, but the numbers work worse for you because you didn't get it at a, at a good enough uh, price to make it work. Um, so the first point that I'd make is that it's really important for people to actually not just immediately um, fall into, I'm starting a business, I'm starting from scratch, I'm starting with my idea, um, and I'm going to go from there, you know, buying either a franchise or a, um, uh, a an existing business from uh, an independent, you know, is certainly worth considering. The second thing is that it makes a huge difference when you're buying a franchise, whether the franchisor is new or the franchisor is well-established because a lot of the value in um, the franchise is that that system is there, it's the system works, the system's there to support you. And one of the problems with a new franchise is that you can certainly have some that will turn out great, but a lot of them just fail. And then if that happens, that's not the greatest uh, arrangement for uh, the franchisee. That's interesting. One of the things we were talking about earlier, Dr. Shane, uh, in segment one is, is the importance of having a niche in the market. And I recall in the book you mentioned that I think it was like 30% of the uh, – uh, people starting up a business didn't believe they had a competitive edge. Were you surprised about that? I mean, I was. Yes, I, I was. I was actually very surprised at the idea that people would be willing to start a business for which they didn't believe they had a competitive advantage because it makes you wonder what their logic was for thinking that business right. would be sustained and would keep going. Another thing that's, that's surprising that's probably related to that is a lot of people start businesses um, – and it takes them a long time to get that business going. And I think what may be happening is that people start without a competitive advantage, and a year later they realize that, you know, it's not enough. They haven't gotten that business right. up and running, and they probably won't because they realized later they didn't have a competitive advantage. Exactly. Interesting. So, what are some other industries, Dr. Sheens, uh, that are popular uh, for startups? Where should people be looking? Well, this actually goes to a really important question, which is that when you ask the question, what's popular, and you don't want to couple that with where should people be looking, because right. in fact, it's the most popular industries that tend to be the worst. And Interesting. Right. One of the statistics I've got in the book, which is, is very, really frightening, is that the rate at which people start businesses in industry, right, how, how popular that industry is, is correlated 0.77, a really high correlation with the failure rate in that industry. People systematically pick the industries uh, right. where their odds are most against them, and it's because they're easy to enter. So, you know, when you say what's popular, I would say, you know, there's a bunch of things that are popular. It's personal right. services, it's retail, it's construction, but that's not good. And the, the, the difficult part is that it turns out that most businesses um, are not great businesses to start and that if you want to start a good business, it's going to be harder to find and there's going to be a lot more obstacles um, that are going to suggest that maybe you don't, you don't want to pursue that and, and make it a higher hurdle for you to overcome to say, oh, yeah, it's worth trying. And I guess a popular industry is something like food, which is what, Marty, maybe 40, 50% of the whole franchising industry. It's something easy to go into. Right. 
Um, you know, I guess that's a good example, uh, Dr. Shane, of someone choosing food because it's there, 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 there's so many food franchises, but maybe there's a higher chance of failure with certain concepts, maybe. Right, and so and 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 food is a good example of something. Any kind of food in retail are in um, industries with very high failure rates, and this is where, you know, people might really seriously benefit from thinking about buying a franchise from an established system because your odds are so much against you in starting um, a business from scratch in those industries. Now, there may be other industries where, you know, franchising offers much less of an advantage and startups do, you know, particularly well. A kind of the opposite to that might be uh, uh, computer-related uh, businesses where startups actually tend to do incredibly well. Actually, a quarter of the past 25 years, a quarter of all the Inc. 500 companies are computer-related. Um, and there's very little kind of uh, value-added typically provided by franchisors there. And so that, the balance is probably going to be different in different industries. But, you know, food is the, the, the poster child for industries where it's hard to do well as an entrepreneur. And uh, the computer and, and related services to that industry is interesting because mo most people can uh, probably just dip into that type of franchise fresh with no experience at all, which is what franchising is all about. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's nice to have a business ownership experience. But uh, uh, so I thought that was an interesting uh, uh, industry you brought up. Uh, why, why do people start businesses in, in general? Well, well, here's an interesting fact. So the number one reason why people start businesses is because they want independence. They don't want to have a boss. They want to be uh, in charge. And, and what's problematic is that that tends not to be something that motivates people to perform very well financially. Um, it's, it's sort of, you know, if my idiot boss can do this, I can do it too. So I'm right. going to go uh, and do it because I don't like working for that idiot. And the, the problem is that that generally is not something that makes people uh, very successful, but it's the dominant reason why people do it. And how many jobs do new businesses create? I guess you talked about that in your book, of course. Right. So, so this is something that's um, kind of, on average, not very many. So if we look at businesses that are under two years of age in the United States, they account for 1% of the jobs in this country, um, which is minuscule. And one of the oh. things that gets lost in this discussion always about uh, job creation and entrepreneurship is that small business does not mean new business. Right, a new a small a, a small business could be quite old. You can have a hundred year old small business. A small business is a function of the business's um, size, and because so few new businesses are successful, it takes a while, and they don't start with very many jobs. It takes a while for you to get any of them generating many jobs, and when they do, it's a small percentage of them that accounted for most of that uh, job growth. So you're saying one percent. Of all the new businesses starting nationwide, whether it's a franchise, non-franchise, just all uh, you know businesses, and uh, you're saying just one percent of the total jobs is, is just created from that. I mean, I, I mean, I thought that was was, was higher as well. One percent of all employment in the private sector in this country are businesses that are two years old or younger. That's amazing, right? isn't it? It's incredible. And to get to get to a point where the majority of jobs are in businesses that are um, uh, businesses that are young. You have to define young as 10 years old or um, uh, younger. And the, the thing about 
10 years old, right, is, I mean, if you just use the analogy of children, you realize that 10 is not a newborn, right? 10 is not new. 10 is actually fairly old, and there's been a lot of businesses that have failed by the time you get out there. In fact, close to three-quarters of all the startups are gone by the time a business reaches uh, its 10th anniversary. Wow, it's all, all interesting information, statistics. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Scott Shane, wrote the book, uh, The Illusions of Entrepreneurship, and earlier you talked about your, that you were surprised uh, when you're doing your research on how people are financing their startup business. How, how, you know, maybe let's talk about that in a little more detail. How, how do entrepreneurs finance their startups? Well, the main way that people finance the startups that most I think most entrepreneurs don't take enough into consideration is with their savings, right, that they don't get money from anywhere else. That is the vast majority of people, that's how it's financed. And so the idea that you're going to raise capital is something that only matters for a minority of uh, entrepreneurs. The second fact that's important is that businesses that are four years old or, or, or younger, the majority of the money they get is debt, not equity. And so we have this uh, illusion somehow that you can't borrow money for young businesses. In certain industries, in certain sectors, that's very difficult to do. But in general, it's not that hard to do. And in fact, the number one source for capital for businesses that are young are actually banks. And that's something that, that uh, people forget. They say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to friends and family. I'm going to go to business angels. I'm going to go to venture capitalists. Um, all those things. You, I'm going to go you know, get a co- corporate strategic partner. I'm going to get all those things. You bundle all those things up together, and they still finance uh, fewer businesses than uh, young businesses than banks do. Um, but the, the, the catch, the piece that's important is that most new businesses do not get financing on the merits of the business itself. Most of that borrowing is, is somehow personally guaranteed by the entrepreneurs. And, and so one of the things that I think most people are not taking enough into consideration is that the normal financing pattern for uh, a new business is I use my own money, I transition into somebody else's money that I have personally guaranteed, and then if my business is successful, I can transition from that to borrowing on the merits of the business itself. But that's much further downstream, and my personal credit and my money are very important in my ability to finance Mm. my own business. Well, I'm not surprised what you're saying, because as time goes on, you're reading more about people having more debt and less savings, so it is tougher for someone to use their savings to start up, and that's why I do uh, our small business loans, so I'm glad to hear your research is kind of backing up my industry, and that more people need to go to a bank to get financing, because... and, uh, you know, uh, you know, our uh, you know, numbers are increasing as well. I'm just surprised maybe there's not a few more people who are, uh, you know, lining themselves with those angel investors or private investors' partners. Uh, I tend to think there's more of that going on, but you're showing it's actually there's, you know, there's not, not not that much of that activity, Dr. Shane, right? Right, and part of this is that very few businesses um, actually stand a chance of generating the kind of growth that would provide sufficient returns to an equity uh, investor. Um, It's just actually pretty rare. So, in fact, I think it's important to keep in mind is what the typical business looks like. Half of all businesses that get started project um, sales of $100,000 in five years. Now, if you're starting with half of businesses like that, you're talking about you're getting down to a very small number of businesses that are planning to generate the kind of growth it's going to take 
to interest investors. And so you certainly have them, but they're, they're a small portion of the total. And banks and other kinds of sources of debt financing can finance operations in a way that um, makes sense where people could service debt, but, they, but the business would not generate a high return on the equity that was invested in it. And I definitely conf- uh, you know, confirm with you that, uh, th- that a lot of the banks we work with do look more at the individual, the strength of the individual, rather than, say, for example, the franchise business are starting, which is important, but most loans get approved based on you know, the individual and their credit and their net worth and uh, you know, liquidity and past experience and so forth. Are there characteristics, Dr. Sheen, of uh, successful entrepreneurs? You know, a lot of times, you know, Don and I have read articles, you know, talking about the importance of uh, persistence and, you know, motivation and all that other stuff. Have you come across anything like that in your research? So so here's the thing that we've, we've tended to find in doing the research is that characteristics of people seem to explain more about their decision to be an entrepreneur uh-huh. um, than they do about performance as an entrepreneur. And so people, if they are um, kind of really want independence, they tend to start uh, businesses, but that uh, desire for independence doesn't really translate into a much of a performance um, effect. In, it turns out that there's very few of the personality characteristics that people describe as being so important for the performance of entrepreneurs really uh, pan out. Um, you know, persistence is a good example. People say persistence, um, that's an important characteristic. It's important in the sense that it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. There's lots right. of, right, if you're not persistent, you're, you're not going to do very well. But being persistent is only can they keep you in the game, and there's lots of persistent people um, who fail. You know, I like to use the example that in the year that Bill Gates started Microsoft, there were a whole bunch of people probably just as persistent as he was who started businesses, and none of them created a business like Microsoft, right? And in fact, a very large number of those persistent people failed. So your persistence isn't going to account for the performance. We like to think that you know, if we have the right stuff, we're going to do well. The problem is that really having a good business opportunity, managing it well in an attractive industry actually tends to work a little bit better. Fascinating. So it's the quality of the service or brand. Uh, an industry, right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that people actually greatly underestimate, right, they, is thinking about the basic question of why the world needs this business, right? right? You know, most businesses that people start, one of the reasons that they fail is because they're unnecessary. The world doesn't need yet another of that business, right? If that business is not, if the business doesn't solve a problem that was unsolved before or doesn't solve it in a way better than existing businesses solve it, there's no reason to have that new business. And most people don't go into entrepreneurship thinking about that. They actually think, you know, differently. They say, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to have the same product, and I'm going to sell it to similar customers as my previous employer. Um, and the problem with that is um, there's really no advantage over that previous employer, so 
the previous employer's business was successful, but the, the, the new one that starts to, to compete doesn't do as well. What, what's next for you, Dr. Shane, after, after this book? I know you're doing a lot of um, interviews and things like that, but what's, what's in your future? More books? Well, I actually, I actually have um, re- recently uh, finished up a, another book that's going to be coming out this uh, winter on uh, angel investing that looks at um, – uh, you know what's really true and not true about angel investing, and um, how people can become successful angel investors, and how people can wow. better get money from angels. Uh, that that book's called um, Fool's Gold. That's an interesting topic. Great title, and that's an yeah. area where you know, a lot of people really need to be educated in that. I know personally, I'm in the money business, but I don't really know much about that at all. Right. That's interesting. What's what's the best way for someone to um, buy the book, Dr. Shane, Illusions of Entrepreneurship, or any of the other, I think it's 11 other books <laughs> that you've written up to this point? Yeah, so I generally suggest that people just um, go on Amazon.com and either look okay. up uh, my name or the or the title, because Amazon discounts all of those books, and um, you might as well save a little money if you're going to get it. That's fantastic. Right. And we're going to put some links up on our websites, too, as well, right, Don, on franchise interviews and also on Blog Talk. I, I know there's a big picture of uh, uh, illusions of entrepreneurship uh, on the uh, homepage of Blog Talk Radio this morning. Right. So, uh, Need a business loan? Talk to Diamond Financial Services, the experts in franchise financing nationwide. Whether you're looking to start a franchise, acquire an existing franchise, or expand your territory through opening new locations, Diamond Financial stands by your side start to finish. From pre-qualification to packaging and presenting your application to securing a financial commitment and through the loan closing process, Diamond Financial is there. While you're waiting, thousands of others are making their financial dreams come true. Don't wait any longer. Pre-qualify now by completing a confidential, no-obligation financial analysis. Let's face it, traditional banks just aren't in the business of financing small business. At Diamond Financial, we specialize in securing franchise loans from $100,000 to $3 million and equipment leasing up to $150,000. Let us help you get started. Go to www.franchisefunding.net or call 877-508-2274. That's FranchiseFunding.net, 877-508-2274. Franchise Interviews. For over two years now, Franchise Interviews has been giving you an up-close behind-the-scenes look at franchising and entrepreneurship. Through our website, FranchiseInterviews.com, where you can hear and read interviews as well as get tips from some of the most successful sources in franchising. And our weekly franchise radio show, where each week you get to hear a new interview with franchisors, franchisees, franchise authors, experts, and attorneys. And our free franchise newsletter, which is a must-read for anyone looking to buy a franchise. And don't forget to listen to our podcast, Great Quotes in Franchising. For more information, go to FranchiseInterviews.com or call us at 610-905-2919. That's 610-905-2919.
Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Franchise Interviews, where we're asking the franchipreneur who owns one. I'm your host, Marty McDermott, with my co-host, Don Johnson. And if you've ever dreamed of owning your own business, then you've come to the right place. And as we were saying earlier, Don, we have a great show today. We're meeting with Dr. Scott Shane, author of Born Entrepreneurs, Born Leaders. And this is the first book to review the entire range of scientific literature on genetic effects on organizational behavior and explain in a practitioner-friendly manner how your DNA affects your workplace behavior. Hi, Dr. Shane. How are you today? Welcome to the show. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Shane. Dr. Shane, joining us is my co-host, Don Johnson, and I know, Don, you wanted to say good morning to Dr. Shane. Dr. Shane, it's great to have you back on. We appreciate it. You're you're really uh, keeping yourself busy lately, huh? <laughs> yeah, I am. Well, that's my job. Well, it's, it's funny, Dr. Shane. I don't know if you remember. I know you do so many of these interviews. When we had you on the show, I guess it was about a year and a half, almost two years ago, Don, and we were talking about Illusions of Entrepreneurship, which was an incredible book. You kind of hinted that you were um, interested in this topic, you know, so it was great to see that you did come out with a book, uh, you know, on, on the subject. Why did you write the book, Born Entrepreneurs, Born Leaders? Well, it's actually something um, that I have been working on for uh, several years now. So mm-hmm. at the time that I, I spoke to you before, I was actually doing research on the topic. And right. I don't know, about five years ago, I got interested in whether there's truth to the kind of statement that people make all the time that you know certain people are just born entrepreneurs. And there's actually several different scientific methods that you can actually answer um, that question uh, to see whether there is an innate component to uh, being an entrepreneur and entrepreneurial performance and aspects of entrepreneurship like identifying opportunities. Um, And I've started using those methods in doing uh, my research. And then I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of interest amongst uh, practitioners in this general uh, topic. They're the ones who are often using these terms all the time. Um, And in in looking at it, I just realized that a broader book, than just entrepreneurship would be necessary because there's issues related to leadership and job satisfaction right. and financial risk-taking and um, even the choice of occupations in general. So I thought, well, a broader book, but that looked at the uh, you know, genetic components to uh, workplace behavior would be good. And how is writing this book a, a different experience for you, you know, Dr. Shane, from from like illusions of entrepreneurship or fool's gold? Is it, is it the similar process or... Uh... A, a little different because I know you don't have a background in genetics, which I guess doesn't make a difference. But well, so so some part of it was actually uh, different, and some part was similar. I mean, anytime you you write a book that's based on kind of scholarly evidence, there's reading of that um, literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two big differences here were that in the other books, a very large portion of what I was writing was about my own research. Um, and here, a small portion, actually a small portion of one chapter, the chapter on entrepreneurship, was about studies that I did with, with my colleagues, and the rest was just summarizing what other people had um, done. Uh, the other difference is that the some of the research that needs to get reviewed is truly um, uh, molecular genetics work where people are trying to associate versions of specific genes with outcomes uh, like um, – uh, whether people are engaging in uh, leadership or financial risk-taking or what have you. And that's just a little bit harder to uh, work through because I had to move myself up the learning curve in understanding that research. And what do you think people are so fascinated with this topic? We, we Don actually read 
one of your blogs on our show. I just thought it was probably about like six months ago. Right. And uh, you and I were both fascinated in the topic. But why are people so interested in this topic, Dr. Shane, do you think? Well, I think I think one part of the reason that people are interested is that um, people intuitively believe that some part of what we do in our jobs and everything else in life is innate. That that mm. that so scientists work hard at kind of trying to document this and keep people from overstating the case. But the intuition is that everything is not environmentally determined. That there's some innate component to everything, and so people are. Um, quite interested in that. Um, I think that's that's one part of it. I think a second part of it um, that makes people interested is that it kind of suggests that down the road we're going to get better at um, training and incentives for people because much like people have developed personalized uh, medicine where people have a version of a disease with mm-hmm. certain genetic makeup, they're given certain drugs and not right. others. There's this idea down in the future that maybe that would happen for other activities as well, that you know, this kind of person, the way we um, train them to be a leader is different than this other person. And I think intuitively a lot of people say, you know, I, go, I went to business school or I went to college and, you know, everybody, everybody's treated exactly the same way as if, you know, we just got this information and then we would all um, magically become entrepreneurs or leaders right. or, or, or what have you. And I think intuitively people are just skeptical that, that people can be treated the same way and get the same uh, uh, outcomes from it. Yeah, and that's what I got. When I was reading the book, I remember Chapter 7, Donna, you were talking about uh, Leona, who was a girl, I guess, studying uh, leadership, and she was always fascinated in the topic and uh, – wasn't very, I guess, successful as a leader. And then her friend, I think it was Susan, uh, people just followed her. Um, so I, I, I guess that's like one example of that type of situation. Right. And, and I mean, people sort of, this is intuitive to people, right, that everybody knows somebody that really, really wants to be a leader right. and just can't, no matter what. Exactly. It just seems that they're unsuccessful. And then there's other people who um, seem to be just naturally followed and and what is it about them is it really um their life experiences that made them so different and the part that makes that kind of difficult is that we start seeing some of these patterns you know in little kids and Mm. you know you say okay well you know there's always some learning but but how much of you know a four-year-old following um uh other uh four-year-olds and one four-year-old leading other four-year-olds, how much of that do we really think is the environment shaping them, right? You know, right. they've only had four years and they haven't had, you know, work environment experiences and these, these other things. Now, sure, how their family raised them and even experiences when you're two or three have an effect, but what people realize is, yeah, but probably there's something else. Right. <laughs> and that's, it's that something else that we, we want to know about. Yeah, it is interesting, especially when you have kids. You, you see how it changes your life. I know you went through this, Don. You know, my son, Dr. Shane, he's uh, two years old, and, and we could see he's kind of like a little follower, you know, um, in, in interacting with the other kids. He's not the leader of the group, you know, and you wonder, you know, is that just inborn, you know, as, as your book talks about, innate, you know. So it is it is a fascinating topic, that's for sure. And it's now, also interesting timing, Dr. Shane, with uh, what's going on with our country being entrepreneurial and you know looking to start up their own business, we have a new generation of people being business owners, and I guess uh, this will be good. People might want to 
learn a little bit more about themselves and if they mm-hmm. are the right type to uh, be creative or be entrepreneurial and aggressive and start up a business. Uh, uh, possibly talk a little bit more uh, about uh, genetics and what you mean by genetics uh, for you know people listening to you know clearly understand it. Right, and and you know I just it's a good time to to say that right now because having said um, you know what you said before, I don't want people to be left with the idea that any of this is kind of deterministic because it's right. not. What right. what we're talking about is you know tendencies and 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 probabilities. So you know um, uh, just because um, there's some force that makes someone a little bit more likely to be a leader doesn't guarantee they're a leader and 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 vice versa. Um, but it's like um, it's like capital, right? We know that people who have more net worth are more likely to start businesses because they can more easily self-finance, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't guarantee it. It just affects the odds. And it's a similar thing uh, here as well. But what we mean when we talk about genetic factors is all the things that are innate to uh, people um, that come essentially from their their genetic makeup, and that could operate lots of different ways, right? We could have um, differences in how people are genetically coded um, and how that affects the um, neurotransmitters, the uh, brain chemicals uh, th- that uh, operate um, to stimulate people. And a good example of this is dopamine receptors, and dopamine is sort of the feel-good chemical in the brain, right. and we know that um, some people's brains uh, release more or less of the chemical, um, and you know one of the questions is, okay, well, um, how might that affect behavior? And there's some evidence to suggest that you know some people who uh, are less uh, prone to releasing the dopamine or having the dopamine in their brains, they need more stimulation to do it. And so they might be more likely to seek more novelty and new situations and those kinds of experiences. And that's where we observe actually in some of the data that we've looked at that, in fact, some people are innately more likely to seek new uh, situations and seek novelty. And that those are people more likely to start businesses. Now, start starting businesses isn't the only thing they're going to do. You know, some people might go into extreme sports or something right. else in response, but there's that biological effect. Then there's this other effect that essentially you get uh, people who become more likely to have certain kinds of uh, personalities or uh, cognitive abilities, and that leads them down certain roads, right? If I am innately better at um, mathematics um, uh, early on, that that might take me down the road to being more likely to study math. And if that's the case, the odds of me becoming, you know, an actuary later in life are much higher than if I'm, you know, not heading down a mathematics road and I'm heading down a uh, a literature road. And And, you know, then we know that there's interactions between the genetic um, makeup of people and the situations that they're in. So we, we've got some evidence on leadership that shows that people who are innately predisposed to be leaders, they have a genetic makeup. If those people o- have to overcome some kind of obstacle in their teenage years, some sort of bad thing that happened to their family, like the parent lost a job or they lost a parent or something like that, it's that interaction of being innately predisposed and the stimulus of having to overcome an obstacle that makes them more likely to adopt the leadership role. So we get all these different mechanisms all all coming together to affect um, 
the tendency, but what they have all, all in common is some portion of the outcome is coming from innate differences. So some people are more comfortable, uh, when I was reading the book, Dr. Shane, in, in putting their money into like a high-risk business. I, I was thinking, you know, I was going to tell you before the show, Don, that this might apply to uh, even franchising because I guess, you know, the people that are investing into, and I know you wrote a book on this topic too as well, Dr. Shane, people investing in a franchise might invest in a franchise because they aren't, um, I guess, their level of risk or risk-taking isn't as high, maybe because of something genetically within them. If they they have investing in a a business that has a track record of success, um, I guess you can apply it to to the world of franchising as well, couldn't you? Well, right. So part of what we don't have is that we don't have a lot of evidence that would show the specific examples right. here. And you know, it's interesting because I you know I talk to um, you know folks that do. Um, radio show on angel investing and you know they say well you know how does this apply there it's the same thing it probably yeah. applies to everything right um but we don't, we don't have the evidence that that would say here's the example in the case of um a fr- franchising but what we do know is that there's a innate component to how much financial risk people are willing to take and there's some very interesting studies where people you know look at identical and fraternal twins mm, and, and yeah. that's a, a good, good example because the identical twins share 100 percent of their uh genes and the fraternal chin, uh, twins share half and that's right. how people can measure these genetic effects and you see okay people go to some kind of um, money manager and they're asked to fill out a questionnaire about how, how they'd like their money allocated and uh, the evidence is there's a genetic component to how they fill out that questionnaire. And other people in Sweden, when they privatized the social security system, they actually linked um, that up to data about uh, twins and found that actually whether people were choosing their social security to be in stocks or bonds was affected by um, their genetic makeup. And people have also even found versions of specific genes that are associated with that. So we know that risk-taking, which is probably kind of a basic aspect of human beings, you know, throughout um, our entire history uh, is there. Well, that probably manifests itself not just in physical risks, but in taking financial risks. And if franchising is a type of financial risk-taking, then one would expect it to matter there as well. I don't have any evidence to show that, but, you know, there's no reason to say, well, you know, picking stocks and bonds, the innate component to risk taking is there, but it wouldn't be to purchasing a business that doesn't seem logical. Wow, it's fascinating. Uh, and Dr. Shane, uh, I mean, do you feel that people fear discussing genetics or maybe finding out information about themselves that might be different than what they thought they were? I mean, yeah, yeah I, maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think there's two big issues. One part of it is that people say, well, I don't really want to know about these things because I might not be able to do anything about it. And you know, part of that is that that's a kind of that's the sort of initial first reaction. But one of the things that that we realize is that there's probably actually um, down the road a bunch of things that will will happen. That if people can do this kind of research and understand these things, they'll figure out what the link is between the stimulus that people need and their innate predispositions to get outcomes. And and we all would like to have um, kind of an ability to have 
the things that we do make for, uh, you know, desirable outcomes. So if we say, well, look, you know, I really want to be a leader, but it right. seems like all these leadership training courses that I'm taking aren't doing anything. Well, why is that, right? And we don't have the answer today, but, but we might 10 years down the road be able to say, well, see, this kind of person, they're more likely to respond to this kind of training or information. So part of it is that people, their initial reaction is, um, uh, I don't think I'm going to get anything out of knowing this. The second reaction is, this is informational really at this point, but it's not an action plan, right? We don't know enough information to, to say that. You know, I've written books on other topics where we can say, look, we really know a lot about how you would say design a franchise system so right. that a person can read the book and take it out today and do that. This isn't that kind of book. It's not going to uh, tell you that. Um, and then the third part is that people um, have a negative reaction that uh, it'll just be used, the information will just be used uh, badly. It'll be used for uh, uh, bad purposes. Um, you know, my, my reaction to that kind of view always is, well, you know, just because you think something could be used uh, for a, a bad outcome doesn't mean you want to ignore it because most likely the only people who are going to pay attention to something um, are the people who are going to um, have uh, ill motives if everybody else is uh, afraid to look at it. And even if all you want to do is regulate something, you should understand the patterns. I mean, if you use the analogy of um, insider trading, we wouldn't want to say, oh, insider trading is bad. Let's not look at it at all. Um, and the only people who would pay any attention to it are those who wanted to take advantage of it. We might want to say, oh, it's really bad. We need to understand how it happens um, and uh, take action. So even if you think that these genetic effects are bad, you might want to know about them. So you could say, okay, well, we need to make sure they don't influence. We don't let people use them in the workplace. Right. Interesting. What would you say to um, people that want to be great leaders, Dr. Shane, or, or an entrepreneur, and let's say they haven't been successful um, what do you say to those people? Like Leona was the one that, that came to mind. I referenced her earlier on. Uh, you mentioned her in Chapter 7 of the book. W what advice would you give her if she's just been unsuccessful in leadership and she still <laughs> wants to be a great leader? As you said, she, she went to all the training, she's read all the books, and she just – is right. there anything she can do? Right. So, so here's the difficult situation. The answer is there's always something you can do, mm -hmm. right, that all of this stuff is, is – is probabilistic, but part of it is what you want to do is give people a mental framework that doesn't say, um, I'm going to fix your problem, right? One of the things that actually business school professors do, I think that is unfortunate, is we kind of give an overinflated sense of how incentives and training and all this are going to work, right? Mm -hmm. you, do, you do it, it's going to work. Right. You want to be a leader, boom, we'll train you and be a leader. And what you realize is, no, it might not work for everyone because there are aspects of them that we can't um, tap and, and, and change, and we don't know how to do that yet. So if right. um, there is something about certain people's innate predispositions that we need to train them a little bit differently to be leaders, then they might experience a lot of kinds of training that we haven't, we haven't figured out the right stimulus yet, and, and they're going to um, be unsuccessful. And the point is, you know, uh, not to not to give up. I know that this isn't really the you know ideal answer because what it's saying is kind of the sales job that people get of do this and you're gonna your problems right. will go away. Um, the, the, what what this is saying is it's not so simple. 
And um, the problem is that that's not always the most appealing answer. It's not so simple. It's complicated. You need to keep working on it. We need to still try to figure it out. We don't have all the answers yet. Not 100% appealing, but I think it's the reality. And how, do you want to talk a little bit about management? I know in the book you, you spoke about a number of different topics, Dr. Jean. How about um, management style and how genes affect management style? Right. So this is probably actually one of the areas that um, is probably the most interesting for people who are in, interested in, in franchising because we, we know that franchising is a kind of business ownership that's different than other kinds of business ownership um, that, you know, you, you, you will have to be part of a system. And so there are more rules about how you do what you're doing. And um, there's a lot of aspects of management behavior that have a genetic component, whether people, you know, are willing to break rules, whether they're very planning oriented, whether they're um, highly persistent, whether they're um, intuitive decision makers or not, um, uh, whether they're um, risk taking. And, and, you know, one of the things is that um, if people um, have a predisposition to be kind of a certain way, they are going to find it easier to be in situations that reinforce that, harder to be in situations that don't. Now, um, if it, not all that comes from uh, genetics, but, but in fact what, what it's saying is that some people um, innately their style of managing might fit certain jobs and certain kinds of uh, business startup situations better than others. It literally makes them feel more comfortable. Do you think there's like tests that one should take, um, Dr. Shane, before, like let's say, getting into a particular franchise opportunity? I, I, I know Don, um, you've you've read some articles in the past uh, about taking like personality tests, and some franchisors won't take you unless you pass this particular personality right. test. Did you have yeah. any thoughts on that, Dr. Shane, as far as like what kind of tests there are available yeah. and are they accurate? So part of this is this is always tricky because it's not that there's um, zero merit to these uh, tests, mm-hmm. there, there's, a, there's some merit. The problem is that there's not, um, there's not a huge amount of predictive power of the test. But because um, we know that a big chunk of, um, of personality is, comes from innate forces, then you know, what in essence people are saying is, look, I'm giving you this personality test because I'm looking for somebody um, who's a certain type to buy uh, buy my franchise, and um, I know that some part of that is um, just how they were born, um, and I'm in essence making a selection. Now the problem is that when you take all the factors into consideration, there's it's not it's not strong enough to say, oh well, the person with a certain personality would never be any good at being a franchisee. It's just um, about probabilities. Now, um, if, say, somebody with a certain personality is, you know, 5% less likely to be a good um, uh, franchisee for a particular organization, and so somebody applies that, that test, does it mean that they couldn't do it? No, but it means that if you've got somebody who's picking 10,000 franchisees, um, 5% is enough of a... Um, people for them to say, you know what, it's worth me doing this selection because I can avoid a few people who wouldn't fit. 
That's interesting, Dr. Shane. I uh, when I first got the book, I uh, what I always do, I you know look through the different chapters. I immediately went to Chapter Nine: Born Entrepreneurs, How Your Genes Affect Your Tendency to Start Companies. Because I've started a few companies, I've been in business mm-hmm. 20 years, and uh, and uh, you know basically you know for people listening, because this is not you know easy stuff to to understand. But you did a great job in putting it in simple format so people could understand. But you say here your genes influence the odds that you will become an entrepreneur. The statement is true whether entrepreneurship means being self-employed, owning and operating a business, founding a company, or participating in the business startup process. So I like how you clearly state that your genes, um, uh, I guess, uh, like you mentioned before, the tendencies and probabilities, I guess you have a, a greater chance if your genes have that type of makeup and your odds are better that you can be successful. I guess that's what really you've really concluded with, uh, you know, some of this, uh, uh, you know, work that you've done, right? Right. Now, now part of this is that the way that we've um, come up with that evidence is by looking at um, identical and uh, fraternal twins. And so basically if there's a genetic component to something, um, identical twins should be more likely to both do it than the fraternal twins. And that's where you can find the effect. The, the, the catch to all of this is there could be, say, um, 500 different genes operating each with a tiny effect. And since right. people have um, all different combinations of those genes, it's not as if you're saying um, this person is going to be less likely to do so because they're they're missing you know X. It's more like, no... Altogether, you add up all these effects and you see the patterns, right? Um, now, again, this is useful for people trying to understand what's going on. I'm not sure at this point that people can turn that into something that's necessarily, you know, completely proactive because you might say, okay, well, um, I'm um, more likely to be uh, an entrepreneur because of kind of um, how I was born, Um but I could still do it anyway. It, it, it will tell us that one set of people are more likely than others, but at the individual level, we don't have enough information yet to say, okay, well, um, the odds are too much not in my favor because of how I was born to do it. And we probably won't ever find anything that's so powerful as to say, you know, nobody should do it because the odds are so much against them. It's going to be a little more likely. It's the same way as saying, um, if you to go back to the financing example, if you have more money, your odds of being able to start a business are greater. It doesn't mean that um, we should say to a person who has zero net worth, don't ever consider starting a business, right? Um, right. It just means you know you, you should probably be aware that you know your odds are a little lower being able to pull this off. Doctor, saying which you know this uh, question I just thought up. Uh, uh, would you rather have a a great genetic makeup for, uh, you know, starting up a business or being an entrepreneur, but maybe have average, just average work ethic and passion for what you do, or maybe a little lower genetic makeup with great passion and work ethic? Well, that's an almost impossible question to answer because the the passion and work, work ethic yeah. is partially a result of, your genetic makeup and partially result of your environmental experience. As well, okay. Right. So, right. so, all, so all so all of these things are having, um, you know, these these effects. Where I think that this is going and where it would be useful in the future is if you say, okay, look, this person is um, innately kind of 
predisposed to be very passionate, um, but they're also innately predisposed to be really disorganized. Um, and this other person is the opposite. Um, what's the best kind of way to get them to be, um, each of them to be effective at starting businesses? Um, somewhere in the future, we'll probably be able to say, look, the passionate person who's disorganized, you need to do these kinds of things to help them become an entrepreneur. And the person who's not very passionate and highly organized, you need to do a different set of things. So I don't think it's going to be so much um, this set of people will be better or this set of people will be worse that you know, 10, 20 years down the road we're going to be able to use this for. It's going to be saying, no, look, what's the best way to match? What's the best way to take advantage of who people are to um, make them able to have the work outcomes that they'd like to have? Wow. And how far away do you think are we from all this, Dr. Shane? I, I, I mean... 10 years, 20 years, um, I, I mean, are scientists actually researching this topic in addition right now? Yeah, so people are doing it. I mean, one of the things that's happened over the past um, decade is that there's been a very big increase in the amount of um, work that uses the genetics to try to um, go outside of things like medicine and go into uh, things like work-related behavior. Now, it's still tiny by the standards of, um, uh, you know, the total number of people working in um, on medical outcomes, but it's attracting interest, and people are are starting to figure out that this matters. There's also these parallel paths that aren't about genetics, but other aspects of biology. There's a whole trend in what people call neuroeconomics and neuromarketing, where people are studying how people literally uh, react to um, things. So if I give you an example of, you know, an advertisement, right? You know, you have an advertisement, you want people to buy stuff. Well, one of the things that these uh, neuromarketing people have figured out is that different kinds of ads stimulate different parts of the brain, whether it's the kind of rational portion or the emotional portion, and you kind of, want to, depending on what you're trying to do, you might want to trigger certain parts of the brain. And so what we realize is that there's a biological um, uh, portion to these reactions that we need to understand and that, you know, 20 years, 30 years down the road, I don't know how long it's going to be, we're going to probably see more of an understanding that there is a link between people's biology and things that happen in the work world. And what's next for you, Dr. Shane? Are you going to continue studying this topic? I mean, you could see your passion for it. And... Yeah, so I, I think that probably for, for a long time this will be the focus of the kind of uh, research that I'm uh, doing. Um, you know, part of it is that now that we're moving into doing um, work with molecular geneticists, we're literally trying to find are there specific genes uh, associated with things like um, recognizing business opportunities? Um, you know, that's a it's a step by step process of small steps that take a long time. So, you know, I would say that um, probably for the, the at least the next decade, that's what is going to be the focus of my attention. That's terrific. And how could um, our listeners get more information on you, Dr. Sheen, and, and getting the book? And they go to Amazon.com, or is there a website they should go to? 
Yeah, so Ed, for the book, the best thing to do is to um, go to Amazon.com and look up uh, Born Entrepreneurs, Born Leaders. Um, finding me, uh, Googling Scott Shane at Case Western Reserve University usually pulls up all kinds of stuff about me. That's great. We'll put a link up for our listeners as well so they can have easy access to that information. And I want to thank you again, Dr. Shane. You're an incredible guest, and we'd love to have you back each year and talk about what you're doing. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dr. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, wow. Dr. Shane. Great show, huh, Don? Yeah, very interesting. Uh, and, and that's what we provide to the country, Marty. Interesting shows and topics, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> this was this was this was different, you know. Um, but it just it is an incredible book, though. You know, I mean, it's just uh, it was great to see that he did go forward with it. You know, just from talking about it two years ago. You know, and it, I haven't seen too many books out there on this on this topic as, as you said it's the first you know so uh, it'll make people learn something about themselves which maybe will help them in their decision on what they want to do with their career I, that, that's what I think is interesting and also it'll yeah. be interesting to see how companies maybe start using this type of information and in, in hiring people or whether to take on new franchisees or, or, or whatever well I think that's why he's going to continue to, to do it you know because there's just more to learn about this whole topic you know um, about genetics and things like that so right. it really is a fascinating topic it's got me thinking so, uh. Management or sponsors. As always, we're privileged to amplify the voice of the people here on Vox Populi 1460 and worldwide at WVOX.com for you and yours. Westchester, the Bronx, and now the world on WVOX.com. The sound of power. Have your own radio show. Call David O'Shaughnessy for availabilities. 914-636-1460. Hey, welcome to Brand Talks. Go brand yourself. The only show on radio where branding gets practical and personal here on WVOX Radio. 1460 on your AM dial. My name is Dr. John Tantillo, and I'm here as your brand coach to guide you through personal career and business branding. As I like to say, let's look at this time together as our time, your personal appointment to help you go brand yourself in terms of your life, your career, or business. It's your brand haven. And if you're joining us for the first time, this show is not about me, despite what a lot of people, a lot of my friends, that my friends have a lot of advice for me, and um, and because uh, they say I always talk about myself, but I am just talking about myself, be so that they or my listeners, you folks out there can understand what all of these uh, branding issues are and to help you to go brand yourself. And um, boy, do we have a great show today. Uh, as my guest, I have, you ever think about uh, trying a franchise, you know, building a franchise, you've been um, furloughed from work, you've, you've had it with corporate America, you got a nice package and gee, should I try being a franchisee? And um, I well, we're gonna uh, we're gonna ask uh, Professor um, Marty McDermott 
just what kind of a brand or what brand characteristics you need to be a franchisee. And we're going to talk about which brands are hot in the franchising business. And um, and not only, you know, i got to tell you something. This guy, uh, I shouldn't call him a guy, Professor McDermott is a wonderful man as well. You know, uh, I was taught at an early age that you do business with people you enjoy doing business with. And um, and that's why I'm just so happy that we became uh, friends once again in the social media world. And, I'll, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that a little bit later. But uh, you're going you're gonna to learn a lot there. And, um, and not only... Back here on Brand Talks, Go Brand Yourself, the only show on radio where branding gets practical and personal. Heard exclusively on WVOX 1460 on your AM dial. So you're out of work, but you got a little bit of a nest egg, or you've been furloughed, and you're thinking about a franchise. What do you do? What do you do? Well, we have today as my guest not only the best franchise expert in the nation, but a dear friend, a wonderful brand. It's with great pleasure that I introduce to you Professor Marty McDermott. Welcome to Brand Talk. And let me not forget this. He is uh, the president of Franchise Interviews. Sorry about that, Marty. Welcome to Brand Talk. Hi, Dr. Tantillo. How are you? Wow, that was a great introduction. Well, it's all true. Just ask your (laughs) wife and ask me, and there you you have it. Well, I tell you, I think my wife fell in love with you after hearing that last show. So I said, I think I I better be a little worried. Well, I'm going to have to do uh, (laughs) pasta over at... uh, the McDermott uh, Clan House in wonderful. Pennsylvania one of these days. I so would love that. That, that would be uh, fantastic. Oh, that, yeah. And, and, you know, despite this uh, thing about the uh, the kid-free zone mm. uh, on airplanes, I love kids, so uh, I don't know what your <laughs> age of your kids are. <laughs> you know, I'm not like W.C. Fields, a man who hates dogs and go. kids can't be all bad. <laughs> but um, anyway, so uh, let me ask you, mm-hmm. what kind of a personality – Okay, well, now since we're on brand talk here on WVOX, what kind of a personality brand is best suited for a franchise? Wow, it's, it's a great question, John. Uh, it's, you know, one of the many reasons I love your show is that franchising is it, it's very much related to branding, isn't it? I, sure there's is. Two, there's two things that you typically get when you buy a franchise, and, and one of them is a brand, you know, mm-hmm. which is certainly your area of expertise. And the second thing is a system. The, the challenge in buying a franchise, Dr. Tantillo, is that you know today there's over 2,500 brands to choose from in 80 different industries. So the first question is like, you know, where do you even begin? Right. You know, right. I mean, it's a little overwhelming. When I got into franchising, I think I got involved in franchising it was like sometime around 
1999, I think there was about maybe 1,400 different brands to choose from. And here we are today in 2013, and there's 2,500 brands to choose from. So wow. it makes it, I, I think it makes it complicated for the aspiring, I, I call them a franchipreneurs. It's right. It's like an entrepreneur mm-hmm. looking to buy a franchise. And you know, some of these brands are very famous names, like McDonald's, who you've mentioned like, sure. on numerous occasions. We have Subway. I, I just found out, uh, Dr. Tentil, Subway's up to about 40,000 units now. If you can imagine that. Oh yeah, so, a great brand. I, I eat their is. sandwiches constantly. They're really, they're really fantastic. Good. They're very, aren't very, they? very good. I, mean, I love they're it. Really, the experts on franchising, I think. And you know, you have other famous brands. You have your Pizza Hut. You have your Dunkin' Donuts. Sure. And then there's some other brand names that are not as well known. You know, sure. I've had the opportunity to, to to interview them because there's so many. Like for example, you have uh, Submarina, which is a sub franchise, and you have Cafe a la Carte, which is a coffee franchise. And sure. You have Arizona Pizza, and so you compare Arizona Pizza. I love brand that. One. Well, how is that ever going to sell in New York, Arizona pizza? Well, exactly, <laughs> right? So, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, when yeah. you compare the brand names, and you see some are, you know, very famous and some are not so famous. So just because the brand names aren't as popular, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't consider them. Oh, I agree, because, because what you want, what, as the brand goes, so does your investment go up. Absolutely. So that's the that that's really uh, the secret. But you know what I want to get into, Marty, and please call me John. I mean, I okay. appreciate that. I appreciate the uh, the uh, title, but mm-hmm. I'm going to call you Marty, and Absolutely. you're going to call I'm me John. Um, it's it's this idea that um, I if I'm a corporate guy, and I and I found mm-hmm. out with my corporate friends that you know, had been furloughed and they tried to start their own business. Yeah. Uh, it's not good for them to be entrepreneurs. I, I think that the perfect, if I could step on your, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on your no, time on this, I think, I think uh, former corporate types would do very well as franchisees, better than than the run-of-the-mill kind of person, although they're fine, because yeah. they know systems and they understand uh-huh. the systems. That when you take a, uh, a, a an executive out of that, right. well, uh, out of Fortune 500 land, they don't know how to do it. I get, why don't you respond to that? You're absolutely right. I, I, I love what you just said. You know, it's, it's true. Entrepreneurs are typically drawn to franchising, and, and I think that could be a very bad thing because entrepreneurs, you know, and, and, and I've been studying them, John, for, you know, many years now. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're typically very creative people. You know, I kind of yes. like compare them to, like, an artist. They like to... They like to reinvent the wheel. Yes. You know? yeah. and there's a great saying. I don't know if you, you've ever heard it before, but they say you can't paint the golden arches green. Of course, we're I love referring it. to yeah, I'm going to I'm going to steal that, Marty. Steal it because because <laughs> I love it. And I knew you'd love that when when you yeah. heard it. You know, of course, mm-hmm. we're referring to you know for your listeners, we're referring to mm-hmm. McDonald's. McDonald's. Sure. You know, but there's probably some nut out there, some nut entrepreneur that thinks that the golden arches will look better in green. And you know, <laughs> how much do you think that those golden arches are worth? Today, I don't know what the price value on those golden arches are, but it's um, right. it, it's pretty high up there. I I agree with with what you just said about you know people in the business community. I think if you can understand what a system is or a method, exactly, of doing things, franchising can work very well for you. Yes, yeah. Well, I you know I I have I have this uh, surrogate son. His name is Patrick, mm-hmm. and um, I, I hope I'm not going to tell tell too many tales at a school heel. But he has difficulty focusing. Mm-hmm. He was always an ADD person. Yeah. And I think 
that the roast of a franchise would be so much better for him. And, but although he has this entrepreneurial kind of uh, uh, gene there, right. uh, for him, uh, at least in the beginning, to learn how to do it, yeah. okay? Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the problem is that uh, nobody's going to tell me, well, I'm going to do it my own way, right. where the corporate guys and gals, they understand the drill. I agree with you. You know, it, it's it's interesting. You know, when we were talking earlier about the different brands, John. You know, I mean, of course, you got your big brands and you got your smaller brands. I found that sometimes with the smaller brands, there's a little more, let's say, flexibility. You know, yes. where as opposed to, you know, with a McDonald's or a Subway, can both very successful companies. There's not much flexibility with those right. franchise systems. I mean, there's no room for entrepreneurship or creativity. Right. You know, well, yeah, and you have to go to university. Exactly. And you've got to be interviewed. And you don't have to be interviewed. Your family's got to be interviewed. Exactly. Nobody Please. realizes this. Oh, absolutely. Oh, this is no day at the beach. Oh, I'm going to open up a franchise, a McDonald's franchise. Oh, yeah? Good luck. Absolutely. So, I mean, that situation that you, you've given, you know, with, with your surrogate son, I totally agree that there's probably some franchise systems out there that would be a great match for his personality type. I, um, right. You know, you, you were talking about, about corporate guys. I got to interview one of the top franchisees for a franchise. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They're called Liberty Tax mm-hmm. Franchise. And I right. think you have them in New York. I mean, H&R Block is, of course, sure. the most popular. But um, this gentleman, his name was Dan Castellini, and, and he said something very interesting because I, I said, you know, how did you become the most successful franchisee? To Liberty Tax, and, and he said something interesting. He says, "He says I'm not creative. I didn't want to invent anything. All I wanted to do was to follow the system. I just <laughs> did what they told me to do, I and it. I became the top franchisee. I love and it. And that's franchising that's in a nutshell. Ex- isn't that it? that mean, certainly is. It, it certainly is. Well, let me ask you, Marty. What is the hottest franchises, the brand names, and then I'm going to ask. Okay. Oh Answer that. What's the hottest franchises these days? And maybe uh, not some brand names that we don't know, and maybe what category they're in. It's interesting. Um, you know, uh, again, if, of course, you don't want to hear Subway. I mean, Subway is still actually in the top. I still think sure. that they're in the top ten. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts is in there. Um, My McDonald's favorite. McDonald's is yeah. in there, of course. Um, you know, so, of course, your, your big-name franchises. Uh, Entrepreneur has, like, a top 500 that right. actually come out right. every year, you know. Oh. And, you know, usually do see, a, you know, a lot of, like, the, 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 the top names in there. But I don't think that those franchises are certainly for, for everyone. Sure, you know? um, because they're very, very, very strict and very doctrinaire on, on their procedures. Absolutely, right. absolutely. You yeah. know, so you know, I, I, I'm still a fan of you know some of like these small and, and, and growing franchises. I don't know if you you know this, John, but Dave Thomas was one of the very first franchises to KFC. I think he was like uh, the second. I or yes, first. I think I remember seeing that. And let me just get this in. You're listening to WVOX Brand Talks. Go brand yourself, and we have. Um, uh, my guest today, Marty McDermott, who is the president of Franchise Interviews. Who? Uh, how can we get in touch with you, by the way? Very easy. Go to www.franchiseinterviews.com. Isn't that good? 
Yeah, very easy, and, and I think we have about 350 different interviews. I love on, it. On okay. Right now, John. Yeah, so it's a very informative. It, it's, you know, I, I kind of, it's, it's similar to your show. You know, it's, it's, I like to think of it as being educational. And when we started Absolutely. the show, is the teacher in us, right? It's yes. Like, <laughs> we yes. like to teach at the same time. Oh, you know? yeah. So, well, you, uh, well you, uh, you know what they always said, with Tantillo, you laugh and learn. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that, true, that, that's, uh, that's what we like to try to do. But let me, and, but, and in the last few minutes here, what uh, franchise category is hot? Wow. You know, I was interviewed back in, I think it was 1999 or 2000, and, and I, I got asked the same question, and, and I was lucky enough to get it right. And I think it still applies today. Is I, I still like the senior care industry. Very and, interesting. It senior is. Care. It, it's not, and I'm, when I'm talking about senior care, I'm talking about like more like non-medical. Yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. it's it, you know my 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 dad who who has Parkinson's disease. You know he. You know, we had to have someone come in a lot, you know, sure. and, and, and kind of like spend time with them and, and, and help them and things like that. But it's it's amazing that that industry still seems to grow today because people, of course, are living longer. And, and there are many of us. Uh, the, that's the baby boomers. They're, exactly. Uh, you so know, they don't want to go to good nursing one. homes. That's you right. Know? That's right. But but what's interesting about your question, John, is that there's a lot of like different categories, kind of like. Um, expanding on the non-medical senior care industry. Sure. Like for example, um, there's one company I recently interviewed they're called AmRamp. And what they do is they'll come to your home and they'll they'll create a ramp. Like, like for example, I love like, it. Yeah, my, my, my dad was having trouble walking, you know. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, for him to get down the stairs, yeah. even if it was two stairs, they, they'd create this ramp for you. And you just kind of slide down the wheelchair and, and, and you're able to, you know, become more portable, you know, and get around from point A to point B. So I'm noticing that there's a lot of new, um, I guess you could say subcategories basing themselves off of the um, non-medical senior care industry. So I still like that industry just because mm-hmm. um, I, I think you get to do something good and, and, you know, still make a nice amount of money at the same time. Right. So I'm still a big fan of that industry. The children's category is still growing, you know, with the, the mommy and daddy, of course, working today and things sure, like that. Sure, sure. So um, uh, child But there's, care. there's 80 yeah. industries out there. And, you know, it's, 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 your question is, 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 is the marketing professor in you is, is really very important. You know, is the industry is very critical, you know, and, and we talk about, you know, the SWOT analysis, don't we, you know, right. looking towards, you know, uh, the opportunities and, and the Yeah, could you research. explain what a SWOT analysis is? Absolutely. I, I do this all At, day. Right. SWOT right. is strengths, weaknesses, weaknesses opportunities, opportunities, and threats. So, right. you know, what opportunities are, are, are present to uh, uh, an industry and what are some threats that are out there? Oh, absolutely. Well? You know, and, and, you know, you hit on the, the, the threats. You, you know, in branding, you always have to be branding. You always have yeah. to be reinventing. You always have to be rebranding yourself because of the changes in the in the marketplace. People change, and if you don't do that, guess what happens? You yeah. lose market share. Well, the word I stole from you was brand over. I use that word all the time. Well, now, I hope know? yes. Oh, don't <laughs> get me started word, about brand over with all the these the, all these affected people on television. Oh, you need a makeover. Right. You don't need a makeover. If you do a makeover in three days, you're going to be doing the same stuff. Exactly. You, you exactly. can't be. It's a brand over. What is it? Who are you? And based on who you are, then 
Go do it. Go brand yourself. None of this nonsense. You know, it's like them telling me I should wear a straight tie, you know, or I should wear, uh, you know, I shouldn't wear striped shirts or a polka polka dot ties. What the heck do you know about that? Not you, uh, uh, Marty, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. These people that give, you know, seldom right, never in doubt. (laughs) <laughs> well, this, it's it's very interesting. I, the story that made such an impression on me, you know, is, 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 is of course, you know, your, your famous hat, you know. Yes. Is, is, you know, and to never take that thing off, Ben, because that is part of your character. It's part of your brand. So I remember them even saying once you listening to one of your shows, saying on an interview, you know, would you take the hat off? And, and, and that is not your brand. I wouldn't even right. recognize you. Well, right. right. Yeah. Well, they wanted to do it because, well, but for good reason. They wanted me to be a psychologist, and I'm not a psychologist. And so yeah. that uh, that was not part of my brand. So no, this way I can get away. And the other thing about, and here we go, you're listening to WVOX 1460 on your AM dial. Marty McDermott, John Tantillo, we're doing Brand Talks Go Brand Yourself, heard exclusively on WVOX. You know, I'm going to start talking about me, but it's not about me. It's what, it's what, the experiences that I have learned don't you do what I've done, and uh, don't right. make the mistakes that I made. You know, when they tell you you should you, you should wear a straight tie because you're going right. to turn people off, guess what? <laughs> when I went to that party and all the models said to me, where's your bow tie? I wanted to kill myself. <laughs> I love that. It's, it's, just, it's such a great example. You know, it, and it's interesting, too, John, you know, because there's a lot of you know, big-name franchises. I was recently reading that you know, KFC is, is doing a lot of rebranding right now. In fact, um, I, I can't remember what their new restaurant is called. I think they call it, like, um, oh, what is it, KFC 11 or something like yes. that. Um, you know, we know, you and I, you know, we, we probably know KFC. I still think of it as Kentucky, Kentucky Fried, Fried Chicken. Kentucky Fried Chicken, sure. You know, and what the young kids out there, of course, you know, don't what are know you, it. What are you kidding? That. Yeah, it's still KFC. <laughs> hey, Dad, what are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I mean, when you buy into a franchise, you know, sometimes you, you, you have, you know, some, some very good marketing experts that, you know, they realize that it is time to um, – to, to do a brand over. We've seen a lot of um, brand overs with McDonald's over time, haven't we? Sure, sure. You know, and I know you've mentioned, you know, a bunch of them on the show. You know, I remember listening to one of your shows where, where they, you know, they, they came out with the nutritional content for their menu. Which, yeah, you know and I, mean? I love it. It's terrific. Yeah. And that's where, where, that's where the industry is going. And, be, and if you don't like it, don't look at it. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, but for guys like me who have heart conditions, you've got to worry about stuff like that. And it's it will so stop true. you and prevent you from doing the wrong thing. It's I mean, so when, I, when I looked at that pretzel burger from one of them, yeah. I, 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 you know, the salt content alone could I kill know. you. You know, know? and I mean, I love pretzels and I love hamburgers, but you just can't do that. Listen, Marty, it's always great to have you on the show. We got to do this in another few weeks. Fan of your show, I love your show. You know, and uh, we love you too. We're gonna have you over the house for for macaroni. Uh, That's what. And well, you know what? And before you go, I'm gonna say give a shout out to my my on my aunt uh, uh, Pat Spencer, who this past weekend made. Homemade maracati, or I say oh, maragots, they Jeez. melted in your mouth. They oh, were me un- unbelievable. So anyway, That's so fantastic. Pat, uh, we'll be we'll be hoping soon. Maybe we'll come <laughs> on Marty and the family. Yeah. That's true, exactly. <laughs> okay, Marty, thanks Thank you again. Thank so John. You're great. Thank okay, you so much. Thanks again. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay.
franchise interviews. From Easton, Pennsylvania to Sydney, Australia, you're listening to Franchise Interviews. Franchise Interviews.